I don't think you diminish yourself by showing empathy and sympathy for humans. I, I choose to put my humanity first and I choose to demonstrate that and that has got me under fire. I feel the rage too. I totally feel the rage. But I fight against it. It's not always been easy, but actually, by and large, that's how you win over the hearts and minds of the British public. And once you've done that, then they will listen to you. One day, those of us in the center ground are going to be the kernels of peace. You know, we have to stay here. Welcome to The Big Picture, a show about the past, the present, and the future. My name is Mohammed Hassan, and today we speak to British Palestinian lawmaker Leila Moran. We speak on the week of Christmas, when families around the world are getting ready to celebrate, to worship, to spend cherished time with their loved ones. But in Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, Christmas celebrations have been cancelled. For Palestinians, it's impossible to celebrate in the midst of the Gaza war, which has left more than 18,000 dead and millions displaced, including thousands of Palestinian Christians whose voices are rarely heard. Over the last week, there's been particular focus around the Holy Family Parish in Gaza City, where hundreds of people are sheltering inside, surrounded by Israel's army. On Saturday, two women were shot dead by Israeli snipers while reportedly trying to reach a bathroom. Christian leaders have sounded the alarm, including Pope Francis. Others have desperately tried to speak on behalf of their loved ones trapped inside. One of them is MP for Liberal Democrats and the party's spokesperson for foreign affairs, Leila Moran. I've spoken before in this house about my extended family who are in the Holy Family Parish Church in Zaytun in Gaza. And the situation has been desperate for weeks, but now it's descending. There are tanks outside the gates, there are soldiers and snipers pointing into the complex, shooting at anyone who ventures out. Will the government demand an immediate bilateral ceasefire? Will it change how it votes at the UN Security Council as a result? When will the United Kingdom fulfill its historic obligations to the region, recognize Palestine as a first step to delivering the two states, which is the only way to guarantee security and dignity for both Israelis and Palestinians? Moran has worked for years to bridge the gap between pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian voices inside her own party. Work which she says paved the way for the party's call for a ceasefire in Gaza in early November. But as she waits urgently for news of her family's safety, all she can do now is speak on their behalf. Leila Moran, thank you very much for being here with us today. Welcome to The Big Picture. Lovely to be here, thank you. I want to begin by asking you to speak about your family. Mm, thank you. Where are they right now? What do you know about them? What have you heard over the last few hours? Sure. So uh, my mother's Palestinian, my father's British, and we're primarily a Jerusalem family. So the family that I have in Gaza are our extended family that are cousins of my mother. And they are in a church. It's called the Latin Church or the uh, 
Holy uh, Family Parish. And uh, it, a week ago, came under attack by the IDF. It started with an encircling of soldiers who were at the gates. The bin collector was coming in just to do his job, was shot. The janitor, the same, came to fix something, passed through the gates, shot. Their bodies were laying there in the street for a number of days. They reported, and it's very contentious, but they say they saw white phosphorus being thrown into the church compound. There was gunfire. Of course, they are terrified. They escape into their sleeping on the floors of Sunday school rooms in the complex. And when they emerged, they saw bullet casings everywhere. And so they have been terrified, absolutely terrified. It then escalated further. Um, the generator was blown up. That meant that that was their last store of electricity. It was also the generator that filtered the water, that pumped the water. So they'd been drinking either bottled water or from the well, and that was gone. And then tanks appear. Um, there's a sniper which was operating, and so that stopped them from, again, leaving the classrooms. They were, by the way, my family are in two different classrooms. There's one in one. Um, her husband died. Uh, tragically a few weeks ago from uh, dehydration. He just needed a hospital. And then the others four are together, the parents and, and two 11-year-old boys. And this is all within the complex of the All parish. within the complex, yeah. And they're with about 300 people. It's a combination of nuns, of people who live there, normally disabled people and also orphan children. Mm. And then you know, the Christian community in Gaza is very small. Uh, even Palestine is pretty small, but in Gaza it's even smaller. They all know each other. Um, and yeah, they didn't know why this was happening. What the soldiers told them on day one was that we want you to evacuate. And they said, no, this is where we are. We're not moving. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, for all of the protestations that Hamas is operating from there, now, you know, the Pope and other eyewitnesses uh, who are there are very categorical. There is no Hamas. It's also nonsensical. You know, really? Hamas are operating from a convent and the nuns hid them? Really? It just doesn't make sense if you understand yeah. how this works. It just doesn't make sense. So um, the tanks are still there. The number of snipers has increased. It was one, it's now four. We know what happened to those poor women uh, who were just trying to go to the toilet and shot one was twice in the chest, one in the head. Then the denial by Israeli spokespeople in the UK, it even happened, yeah. and we all felt that we were being completely gaslit yesterday. And some of those Israeli spokespeople were responding to, to interviews that you gave. Absolutely. Um, somebody from the IDF said that, that it wasn't true. Yeah, he'd called me, I mean, he didn't call me a liar very specifically, but he was basically saying that, oh, there's a lot of dis misinformation being spread and, and insinuating that I'm spreading misinformation. And then there was the deputy mayor of Jerusalem who said that there were no churches in Gaza. Right, right, yes. I mean, I don't even know what to say to things like that. It's just blatantly untrue. Um, and I don't understand what they're doing. I mean, this is the main thing. What I've been saying to people is just leave them alone. You know, leave them alone. And they're now down to the last update, which I had last night, and I haven't had a further update, I'm afraid, just today. Um, but they were down to their last can of corn. Mm -hmm and uh, they can't really even see who else has what because they can't go from room to room because snipers are shooting at them. Um, there is a curfew, so a dead, you know, basically after 4 p.m. you cannot leave your rooms full stop until the morning. In the morning you can try, but you have to sort of scurry 
along the wall, and if you go too far away, you're going to be shot at. I mean, it's just the most awful situation. And without water, they won't survive very long. There's been a huge amount of international pressure, not least the Pope weighing in on Sunday, which was incredibly welcome. And um, off the back of pressure that the Pope has put, I've been trying to put with my small voice in this, um, I understand that food is meant to have been delivered. My last update, though, it wasn't getting into the rooms, and that may well be a distribution issue. In the response to me in my urgent question today, the minister said he was going to go check what happened to the food. Um, so that's where we are. What does it mean for someone in the position of the Pope to come out and, and uh, speak? It's not the first time that he's spoken about what's happening in Gaza. That's right. But this time, he, uh, you know, the wording that he used, he, he called what was happening a form Ter of terrorism. Terrorism. It's war, it's terrorism. I mean, it, it couldn't have been stronger. And, and I also want to make it clear, you know, we are talking about, I mean, we are a Christian family, hence why I'm talking about it, but this is a tragedy, no matter your background. People come from... They're Gazans first, you know, the fact that someone's Christian or someone's Muslim, it doesn't really, they are Gazans and in fact we are all Palestinians yeah. and we are all one family right now. But uh, the timing of it, I mean, we, the, timing, the, the way that we're speaking Christmas. now, yeah. Look, this is, we are speaking today on the last day of Parliament before we stop for Christmas. I've been attending carol services for the last two weeks singing about Bethlehem. The timing is auspicious. I don't, I think this is the most ridiculous PR move that the Israeli government could have made. Really? You are trying to expel Christians seeking sanctuary in a church the week before Christmas, and you've picked a fight with the Pope. I don't understand the mentality and, and just why they're doing it at all. But all I can hope is that they'll survive the week. And I, I continue until I know that they've got water and more food, especially the water, I continue to be worried that they won't survive until Christmas, let alone there'll be no celebrating. Um, I've really struggled to buy presents this year. It doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah, and celebrations in, in Bethlehem have been essentially called off. Exactly. They've cancelled Christmas. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is huge. It's huge. So, no, what the churches have been doing in general, um, and I've been, I spoke to Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, this morning discussing this and the impact it's having across the world. I mean. I think they play an important part, and the reason why I think it's important to raise it in these terms, I mean, Biden is a Catholic. What we are trying to do with these stories is, in part, help them stay alive, and that's my selfish reason, and I have a voice, and that's all I've got. But also, can we get this message to Biden? Look what they're doing. Change what you're saying. Change your tone. So I'm pleased that the British government has changed its tone. Important question mark as to whether they've changed position or not. Yeah. And I still think that actually the answer to that is they haven't. Mm. But I, I was, I was um, struck by how many conservative pro-Israel MPs were very angry mm. with the change in language from, their, from the government. And um, Angry that the, word that the wording has changed. Has yes, and that you, know, you are rolling over to Hamas and whatever. I think the next step is that we need to convince this government of the position that my party's taken, so it's an immediate bilateral ceasefire, but more importantly, an understanding that you are not going to get rid of Hamas by a military solution. Look at what you've done. In fact, and some conservative members also made this point today, you are radicalizing a whole new generation of people, not just there, but actually across the world. I mean, we are seeing radicalization happen, and not just in the Middle East, in Africa, here, 
in parts of Indonesia. I mean, it's, it's, the, the fears are real. The anti-Semitism that has flown from this is real. And 10 years, we were talking earlier about race relations in, in this country, 10 years of interfaith relations has been wiped away by the way this conflict has been conducted. Its implications are enormous, let alone we're taking the eye off the, our eye off the ball with Putin and Ukraine. So we have to lift our eyes to the political solution. And I'm very proud that every year I've been an MP, I've introduced the Palestine Recognition Bill. It is not just the moral thing to do. The British promised this to the Palestinians at various points, 1917, 1948. This was a promise. But I also point this government to that history and say, yes, you may not teach it to British children here, but all Palestinians know our own history. And there are moments that are important. And the British part that was played is well understood. You mentioned that today when you spoke in Parliament about the historic obligation that the United Kingdom has. Absolutely. What is that obligation? To firstly recognize the state of Palestine. That is the basic first step. And it needs to be done without preconditions. And then to work tirelessly to deliver that state alongside with equal emphasis on the state of Israel. And that is unfortunately not the stance the government has taken. It has been completely one-sided. And I think that has been a strategic mistake for this country. I think it's uh, soured relations between us and the region. And I think that is in part why Cameron has decided at this point to change the tone. But without follow through in changing the position and without real resource going in behind two states, finally two states, then it's all words. Sustainable ceasefire. Does it feel like just lip service to you or does it feel like a, any kind of commitment from the government? Well, as we talk, uh, we know that a Security Council vote is happening. Um, they seem to signal that they would vote for it today. So that's something. I think, though, it's in part also playing both sides. You know, on the one hand, yes, we're using the word ceasefire, but actually we want the sustainable bit to come first. Well, I would argue it's the other way around. We need to first stop the killing. And if you stop the killing, that will give room to the political uh, negotiations that need to happen, which include the hostages. You know, we continually call for those hostages to be released. I know that part of the problem is that they don't actually know where all of them are. Um, and we know how difficult that's going to be. But actually, that um, frustration in Israel that the hostages are not front and center of Netanyahu's thoughts. Of course not, because he wants to avoid jail. You know, it suits him for this to go for as long as possible. But actually, they're right to call that out. We want the hostages safe too, and we want the killing to stop. Only when innocent civilians are no longer part of this equation, and an understanding that the military solution is only going to bring more pain and more cycles of violence, are we going to then get to that sustainable ceasefire. So I welcome the change in tone, but I think they've got the order wrong. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for you as a uh, Palestinian, somebody of Palestinian heritage, what has it meant over the last two months to be able to have a position, a platform to speak from in parliament, but effectively little ability to change? Uh, your party's not in government. Uh, yeah. There is so much that you can do in terms of statements and, and, and bringing your party to a position of a ceasefire. But as a Palestinian, I mean, what has that been like? So when I went into politics, actually I went in because I was a teacher, I was a physics teacher, and I wanted to talk about education and educational inequality. And I believe, you know, you want to change the world, change our children and give them the best possible opportunities. 
And maybe that's because I'm Palestinian, because, you know, <laughs> our mothers and our fathers, and, you know, they really make sure we study. But when I was elected, you know, I didn't say vote for the Palestinian. I said vote for the teacher. However, in moments like this, how can you not use your voice? Um, and it, it's played in a number of ways. I think I've taken a, whilst my party is small, first of all, I think we have demonstrated as a political party, bear in mind a historic political party that used to be one of the main forces in British politics. We have brought the whole party with us through this process. And it started many years ago. It started when I became the foreign affairs spokesperson. We wanted to develop better policy on Israel-Palestine. We have various groups in the party, Liberal Democrat Friends of Israel, Liberal Democrat Friends of Palestine. They haven't always got on. And I said to myself, well, actually, I, I want to influence this. And I'm going to bring them together and we're going to talk. And it was not easy. I mean, you know, there was a negotiation that had to happen to get to good policy, including immediate recognition, um, banning settlement goods, uh, unequivocal condemnation of settlements, etc., etc. You know, and getting some pretty robust policy there. But doing it in such a way that you didn't lose half your party while you did it. How, how did you do that? Talking. Talking. And listening, actually. Listening. So, you know, when you say you don't want to recognize Palestine, why? You know, what, what is your argument? Or if, you know, you say that you want to go further on this, you know, why aren't you calling apartheid out, for example? You know, why, why is it that we don't want to quite do that in that way just now? And there were compromises, and, but we found a way to bring the party together and with us. And actually, there is strength in that. And what we've ended up with is not just, I think, some of the most robust policy on Israel-Palestine of any UK-wide political party, but we've done it without splitting the party. So it is wrong to think that you have to pick one side um, or you're not going to be strong. Actually, our strength is that when we go out with these policies, we have two teams out to bat for us. We have Friends of Palestine and Friends of Israel explaining to the wider communities in the UK how we came up with this process. And above all, it's respect. If someone has a different opinion to you, it doesn't mean they're wrong. You have to come with a level of humility. Now, I've tried to bring this to the wider debates in the UK. I've tried my very best to demonstrate my values, um, to hold in particular the Israeli communities and Jewish communities in this country close. I went to a vigil in the first week in Oxford, and I knew what was happening. In that same week, my family's house was bombed, and they went to the church in the first place. But I don't think you diminish yourself by showing empathy and sympathy for humans. I, I choose to put my humanity first, and I choose to demonstrate that. And that has got me under fire, uh, Twitter, you know, and it's not always been easy. But actually, by and large, that's how you win over the hearts and minds of the British public. And once you've done that, then they will listen to you, and they will engage with you on the arguments, and you can actually get them further. So I understand, and I, I do, I feel the rage too. <laughs> I totally feel the rage. But I fight against it. And one day, those of us in the center ground are going to be the kernels of peace. You know, we have to stay here. Enough of us have to stay here that we can have the ability to draw people towards us. So while the rage is there, understandably, on both sides, you say, actually, you're not on different sides. We're all on the side of humanity. What we are fighting against is the extremes of the debate 
versus those of us who actually genuinely want, want a peace. And, and I will call out the genocidal language by Hamas, but I will equally call out with as much gusto what Ben Gavir and Smotrich say and the, their suggestions of dropping bombs on Gaza and, you know, second Nakbas and unbelievable language. If you as a country are serious about delivering two states, how can you not be calling out that kind of a language? But this government isn't. It's very happy to call out the language of Hamas, but it doesn't call out the language of not even insignificant ministers in Netanyahu's government, and it's shameful. There is a, an increasing sense of isolation that the United Kingdom, the United States, um, a couple of other European countries are finding themselves in on the world stage. What do you think this means about the role of the UK as a global leader and, and where, you know, you talked about that middle ground that you want to bring people to. Where would you like to see that ground uh, and that final position taken by the, by the British government? Sure. I think Britain has got this wrong. I think they have uh, been perceived, because it's true, frankly, to have picked one side. And I would argue, whilst they, they claim it's the side of, you know, Israel actually is the side of America, isn't it? Let's face it, that, that's what's happened. They've tucked in behind America. I think this is in part a direct consequence of the re retrenchment of British uh, might on the world stage following not just Brexit, but mainly Brexit. <laughs> I think this is also a reflection of this Conservative government, which has those who follow British politics know are probably on their last legs, but let's not take anything for granted. And I think there's going to be a huge amount of rebuilding that needs to happen. Do you feel a sense of hope right now, or is that, or is that too far too far of reach? I will never not have hope. I, because the absence of hope is complete acceptance of failure. As, as dark as this gets, you have to look back in history. You know, and in these dark moments, there have been times, it has led to more, the last, you know, the Oslo Accords, various um, moments where the international community said, right, come on, let's do something. Um, but it's going to be very difficult. You know, I think all of us are feeling it really personally. I'm, there is something, I think two things that are different now though. I think we have a completely new generation of people in Britain and across the world, particularly young people who had no idea about what was going on in Israel and Palestine, and particularly the occupation, and they've learned about it. And they don't understand how we got here and how we let this go on for so long. And the other thing I would point to is the diaspora. You know, this has now been two generations of, well, three generations of diaspora. We are, I'm the first British Palestinian MP. We've got the same in America. We have voices now, we have agency. People have built up their ability to influence and their wealth, and we, are, we stand ready to, to help. And that's what's different. The political will in ordinary British public, and also those of us who do have a position, being willing to use it. Lena Moran, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This episode of The Big Picture is produced by me, Mohammed Hassan, for Middle East Eye. Thank you to Hossam Sarhan for filming and Anas Ala for graphics. And thanks to you for listening. If this episode struck a chord with you or if you disagreed with what was said, we want to hear from you. 
So you can reach me on Twitter at MohammedWasHere or by email at mh at MiddleEastEye.org. You can also watch all of our episodes in video format on our YouTube channel. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating because it goes a long way and helps us reach new audiences. Until next time, salam.